Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Alarm, alarm. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, James Holland and John McManus. And uh, John, you've been on you've been on tour. Is that right? I have. I just got done with the Normandy Send tour with the uh, World War Two Museum folks. It's just an amazing experience. So where were you going this time? Yeah. So um, the way it's set up is you spend half the tour on a, a really nice riverboat run by Uniworld going like from Paris down the Seine River to uh, La Roche-Guillon or Rommelhead is headquarters, Les Andalies. Uh, you go on a field trip to Dieppe one day, and then you spend the other half of the tour in uh, in Normandy where you split your time, or I did, between two chateaus, the Chenevier and the Audru. Uh, and of course, you know, then it's just the deep dive into all the Normandy sites, especially the landing beaches, but also Lafayette. And guys, one of the really cool things is that uh, the day we went to Lafayette, um, the, the terrain was almost exactly like 1944 because the causeway was so inundated. Uh, you know how it was flooded in 1944. And of course we had a, a hurricane, a little hurricane, um, <laughs> while we had this tour. So I guess one of the good byproducts is they'd had a lot of rain. So you could really get a sense of what Lafayette looked like, um, you know, on June 9th, 1944, June 8th. Sorry. God, how amazing. Amazing. And, and of really course, cool. in the draw, you're, you're an, hopping a skip away from point 103, which is, of course, where the Sherwood Rangers were. It's literally just behind it. Yeah, absolutely. Just up the hill. I mean, it's literally, that is Sherwood Rangers Central, the draw is. I know it's also, also where the sort of Canadians are executed in the woods and stuff and the DLI and, and so on. But yeah, amazing piece of turf around there, that's for sure. And a very nice place to stay. Has to be Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, <laughs> that part isn't too terrible, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the World War II Museum does everything the right way. They just, it's first class. Yeah, history aside, it is a lovely part of the world, Normandy, isn't it? That's the thing. It's a, a pleasant place to be, which sometimes makes it even harder to imagine what happened there. It's the, it's the thing. Certainly the intensity of it all can, can be hard to grasp because it's it's beautiful there especially when you come away from the lodgement i mean it's the, those rolling hills and everything it's the gorgeous part of the world it's a beautiful place normandy is this odd convergence of this wonderful beautiful place to be and this horrible history you know that, that we've all gotten into such deep dives it's all and it's all there i mean the place is just dripping with the history of, of what went on in 1944 uh and i that's one of the things i just find endlessly compelling about it how many times do you think you've been there uh, probably at least a, a 10 or a dozen, something like that. I mean, I, you guys have probably been there more than that because you're right next door. But but for, for me, as an American, people were asking me that on the tour, and I'd say something like that, and they were just sort of blown away because as Americans, we can't just get there with a, a sort of hop, skip, and a jump kind of thing. So, I, you know, over the over the years, I think I've gotten to know a lot of the terrain very well, especially, you know, on, on the U.S. side, obviously, which is what I've tended to focus on. And, and so there, there's a kind of a comfort zone in that respect. And I, one of the things I enjoy about these tours is, is just going there with people. And if they have questions, it's just very informal conversations. And I, it's fun. Mm -hmm. and do you pick up something or have, does a new th thought occur to you each time you're there? Is there a thing that Always. strikes you afresh? So on this, on this trip, what would that have been, do you think? Well, I think <laughs> there's probably a number of things because I'm always learning and not like I know everything. I mean, nowhere near. So I, I have so much to learn. But I, I would say the whole San Marcouf thing, you know, the, those islands off uh, Utah Beach. Uh, and it really, it's kind of cool because you can see them out there. It's, it's very easy to visualize how you have to have those islands. Uh, how if the Germans set up guns there, that can really savage the, the U-force, right, that's coming to Utah Beach. Um, and it's really quite a, kind of an interesting story because you have a cavalry unit devoted to this. And there's no Germans there, but there's mines. So it's, it's a little bit like Kiska in that regard that there's actually no on-site opposition, but there's plenty of ways to die. And you have two guys who get killed there, and they're actually both immigrants, uh, I think Eastern European immigrants. And I, I think that part of it, the Utah story, is easy to kind of gloss over because there's so much else going on. And I, I like that you could stand there, you know, on the Terra Green side of Utah Beach and, and just look out there with guests and say, yeah, there it is. You know, and you can also look back and, you know, see the whole Calvados, a lot of the Calvados coast, uh, including Point to Hawk, so it's a very easy battlefield to visualize, unlike many 
that we've visited that are so different or just, you know, so huge that it's hard to get a sense of where you are. And are you planning to come over for the 80th at all? Yeah, I am. I'll, I'll be with the, the World War II Museum folks again for the D-Day 80th. And then we're also doing Battle of the Bulge 80th, too, um, in December of 2024, which I'm oh, wow. terrifically looking forward to. Oh, fantastic. Well, Excellent. if you get an afternoon off, come and join Al and I, because we're out there. <laughs> yeah. Where we're, are you going to we'll be? be there. Yeah. We're going to be in Normandy. We're going to be in Normandy for the week. We're going to go around hoovering around, seeing the sights and doing stuff. It's going to be great. Well, I hope we can get together. That'd be, that'd be really cool. Yeah, it really would be. Yeah, well, I'm, sure fantastic. I'm sure we can. You'll be able to get up one evening or something, wouldn't you? Well, I hope so. We're on a cruise ship. That's one problematic factor, I guess. But <laughs> but I, I assume we'll probably overlap at some point. It's going to be a crazy scene uh, in Normandy next next June. Plus, the Olympics are going to be going on later on, you know, that's I think true. end of June yes. or something in, in Paris, aren't they? Yes, they are. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. God, I mean, should have bought a flat there to rent out. That's the, the, the thing I immediately <laughs> think when I think of the Olympics. <laughs> You'd make good money. <laughs> You'd be even richer than you are, Al. I mean, you know. <laughs> oh, oh, shush now. Right. Um, now, we'd agree we're going to talk about something um, that is almost happening now, 80 years ago. So um, a 1943 event that I think um, many of our listeners might might not know much about. And I know I don't. And uh, before we came, started recording, we, we had a little discussion as to how to pronounce this. I thought it was Tarawa, but it is it Tarawa or is it? I mean, you'll hear both. I, I've always thought it was Tarawa too. Right. Okay. Tarawa. 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 Let's go with that. I mean, imagine if you were Monty. How would Monty say it? Tarawa. Tawawa. Tawawa. Montgomery would have called it Tawawa, yes. <laughs> However he'd um, say it, it would probably piss people off. Uh, exactly. We'd we'll you know, exactly. all agree on that, probably. <laughs> exactly right. Um, and, th- <laughs> um, and this is a, one of these Pacific, it's an atoll, so you're not even island hopping. You're It's chunk of rock time, isn't it, for the US? And it's the three days in November 1943 and John in, enlighten me because I, I know nothing about this it's fair to say and, and it does involve in terms of commanders it's it's some of the the biggies of the Pacific War isn't it yeah Richmond Kelly Turner is going to be you know sort of the the overall naval commander um, you've of course got Holland Smith involved and certainly I don't see him among the upper crust of commanders as everybody knows um, but it, it's interesting he's more just like a supernumerary not really in control of the ground fights because the two divisional commanders, General, another General Smith uh, for the Marines, and then yet another General Smith for the Army, uh, 27th Infantry Division, they're really in control of their own ground fights. So it's funny, we were just talking about the hospitable nature of Normandy. I mean, these places yeah. couldn't be any different. And, and it's also Edson, isn't it? Edson as in Guadalcanal Edson? Uh, it is, it, 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 right, exactly. So you've got an interesting thing because it, you know it's the 2nd Marine Division focusing on the Tarawa Atoll, including the main island of Batio, B-E-T-I-O, which we just generally call it Tarawa because that's where the bulk of the fighting happened. But it's really just one big island and an atoll. Same thing with Macon, about 100 miles to the south. That's another atoll, and the 27th Infantry Division, the U.S. Army, attacks that. And again, it's like often called the Battle of Macon. Well, actually, the, the main island that they're fighting over is Buda Ratari, but it's a lot easier to say Macon. So there's a little confusion there as to even where you are, I guess. John, is there also a case that no one remembers Macon because it's it's the army, whereas Tarawa is Marines? Yeah, I, I think that's a huge part of this. But also Tarawa is a much worse battle and, and much deadlier and bloodier. And it's just horrifying uh, as a close quarters combat kind of fight. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's the sort of tendency we have in the Pacific War as a whole that the army is just sort of overlooked and overshadowed. But this is really a, ma- a two-pronged operation designed as such in which you have two full divisions committed to this fight. Think of all the shipping that takes. So that tells you about where the Allies are starting to be by the fall of 1943, that we're in a position to even do this. So that both these atolls are located in the Gilbert Islands. And this is Central Pacific, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, the you know, the answer is always they want airfields, right? And so, yeah, this is under Nimitz's purview, ultimately. So uh, you can see then he's got army units that are part of his larger naval and marine command. You know, so that's where the 27th Division sits. So it, it can be a little confusing, but the 27th has nothing to do with MacArthur, who obviously is in control of the majority of army resources in the Pacific theater. So MacArthur's off doing his own thing on New Guinea at this point. 
this is in the Central Pacific. And how do you say it? Betio. Batio, uh, B-E-T-I-O. Batio is where the airfield is. That is, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's really quite similar. Like when you look on a map, the Tarawa Atoll and the Macon Atoll and like the, the main island where they're located is remarkably similar geographically. Um, so these, these places are very low in terms of like sea level. You know, there, there's, <laughs> it's, it's just these tiny little islands like Tarawa. I don't think it's even the size of Central Park in, in New York City. Yeah, it looks tiny. I'm I'm looking at it on Google Earth now. It's 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 little. It's little. Macon's like a little well, Budaratari, whatever we're calling it, is almost like a little fish hook. Oh my god, a bet so so it's like a so so for those who don't know, it's it's sort of it looks like a very, very um it's like sort of triangular, but most of the most of the area above sea level is is on a kind of triangular axis on, on the kind of longer angle of the isosceles triangle, I suppose. And that kind of head runs north, northwest to um, southeast, and then you've got another one that runs kind of east to west, roughly. And on the kind of southern eastern corner of this triangle is Basio, and it is Titchy. There's nothing of it at all when you look when you when you look at it. There's room. There's sort of room for two streets or a street to go all the way around it and come back. Basically, when you look at it, and a port. I mean, if you look, if you look on, if you look on Google Maps or Google Earth, there's there's basically the Kiribati Ports Authority with a jetty, an institute of technology, a clinic, a lodge, a cafe, and the New Zealand Memorial to U.S. Marines and Navy, and the Japanese command bunker. Yeah, that that yeah. <laughs> that's it on go- <laughs> on on Google Maps. Essentially, when you look at it, it's, it's yeah. quite extraordinary. So, oh, where's man. the where is the the airfield? The whole thing is the airfield back then in 1943. Oh, there's now it's at, at Bonriki. I mean, in a way, the, the question in 1943 is where isn't the airfield in a way? Because it's like <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like just a landing strip in the Pacific, you know? Yeah. It's uh, similar to Midway in that right. sense, too. Wow. it's abs- Actually, you can see the roads. The roads are now on the kind of sort of follow the perimeter, really, on the main road. Yeah. So the main road that runs along the southern side of Becho, Becho, is where the main runway was. Can you see that, Al? Yeah, yeah. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it's it? Bananas. Absolutely bonkers. You know, the better part of the Second Marine Division thrown at this this tiny little place where you've got a garrison of oh, I don't know what four or five thousand Japanese, something like that. The, the interesting thing about that, this is entirely like the the, the Tarawa battle. It is entirely a. Um, sort of maritime ground battle <laughs> in the sense that it's the US Marine Corps fighting for the Americans. This is a this is a unique animal among all battles in American history, uh, almost unique in that it's entirely a Marine Corps battle. Uh, Tarawa, I mean, usually it's the Marines and the army together. And on the na- on the on the Japanese side, it's special naval landing forces uh, that are like the ground element of the Imperial Navy. So the Imperial Japanese Army is not really a major player at Tarawa. Um, so they they have you know they've gotten these sort of captured guns, uh, some from the British, I think, some from wherever, and and their own dismounted naval guns. I mean, they've really fortified this place with coconut log bunkers and all this kind of stuff. It's a it's a horrifying bramble, and and Macon is sort of its little brother. And how many people are defending this? How many of them? Uh, you know, maybe four to five thousand. Now, it's it's hard to say because there's Korean laborers too. Uh, you see that pattern throughout the Pacific War as well, and you see that on Macon as well. You know, whether they're going to fight, doubt it. But let's say there's three thousand hardcore Japanese defenders. I mean, that is a really formidable adversary in this kind of confined battle area. And they're going to fight to the last man, aren't they? That's a that's a, a given, really, isn't it? So yeah, I mean, o- only seventeen of the Japanese are ever captured. God, at the end Jesus. wow and the rest yeah. are killed all, all the rest of the ethnic japanese like imperial navy guys you know who are there as combat fighters yeah they die and that's i mean now i think there's probably a couple of 300 you know korean labors captured or whatever i mean what is your motivation as a korean labor do you really have loyalty to the japanese empire probably not you've been coerced into this it's they're really in a similar situation to like poles in the European theater, uh, you know, worked as slave labor in a way, serving in a bunch of different armed forces on some levels. And so, you know, they could pose a danger to you as U.S. Marines, certainly. But it's, it's the, of course, the special naval landing force guys who are going to be the big adversaries and, and train combat troops. 
It's it's a kind of amazing, really, when you think about it. Just this horrifying close quarters fight. And where you're having to fight inch by inch. So, I mean, one of the things that's notable about this is is it, the Japanese do resist the landing, which, after all, we, we've talked about other battles where they don't, and they've retreated to the interior, and what they're going to do is is basically a tri- you know make it as difficult for the Americans as possible to to then take an island whereas in this instance they make it they try and make it difficult for them to even get started right which is not a thing we've you know we've talked about other battles where that, well, that's just not happened so do, do we know why they did because if everyone's killed what do we know of their decision making processes <laughs> um, how can we know the, what we do know is that uh, ironically enough the reason, one of the reasons why this is such a tough objective, not just here, but Macon too, is because of U.S. actions right. the previous year, the famous Macon raid by the Marines, right. which really accomplishes next to nothing, unfortunately, and just simply alerts the Japanese. Yeah, encourages the Japanese to build lots of defenses. Yeah, because they're like, boy, we're really weak in the Gilberts and they actually may strike there. We better do something about this. So they have whatever it is, nine months or whatever to really beef things up. So their orientation at Tarawa certainly is to say, well, we, we are going to destroy any landing force that comes here. And that becomes sort of the Japanese uh, predilection for the next year or so. Let's stop them at the waterline, a Ramales kind of concept, which is not really to their advantage. Uh, but at Tarawa, you know, it makes some sense because it's a little place anyway. How else can you do anything but resist? <laughs> you can't retreat yeah. to the interior, can you? So, yeah, so you're going to exactly. have to... You're gonna to have to fight where you are. God, God. And you've got gun you've got weapons to to impede the landing craft. And then there's a yeah. there's a lagoon that the Marines are basically uh you know having to, to get through to to land. And this makes them very vulnerable because uh you don't have enough LVTs. Uh we don't understand enough about the tides, you know, the, during that part of the year. Uh the Higgins boats are gonna have a tough time getting over a coral reef that's offshore by about, oh, I don't know, eight hundred yards, something like that. So what it means is you're gonna get dumped into the water. Uh, probably chin high water and try and wade in in the face of machine gun fire, mortars, uh, artillery. It's one of the reasons why it's so deadly initially is is Marines are really vulnerable trying to wade in, you know, in, in pretty heavy water. And of course, as always, they're laden down with a lot of stuff. Yeah. Whereas Macon, what happens there is that you've got two battalions that land on the extreme west coast of this place against almost no opposition. But the problem there, it's like if you can imagine you're landing in a little funnel where you can maybe get two or three landing craft to come in at a time. And then all that's in front of you is just sort of brambled, sort of scraggle, half jungle, half detritus, half coconut trees and trenches and pits and bunkers. So it's like, it's hard to walk that much less root out where the Japanese are. And then general Ralph Smith sends another battalion around in an enveloping invasion there. So those guys run into more opposition than the initial two battalions on the Western coast. Then, you know, as you get, start to move into the, the island, then you end up at these little sort of small unit actions uh, around the, like the rifle pits and dugouts. And you just never know where they are. At, at Tarawa, you're encountering much more heavily reinforced bunkers and very well concealed positions that are quite deadly. God, yeah, it, God, it's just a horror story, isn't it? It really is. It's urban on some levels, but not. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. It's just weird. The distances are so small, aren't they? Yes, but this is it, isn't it? You're right on top of each other. This sort of incredible weight of ordnance, which, of course, the Americans are going to bring to the party in such a small area. Yeah, I mean, we pounded the heck out of these places, both of them. And yeah. really, the pre-invasion bombardment doesn't do all that much good. One problem they have in Macon, I know for sure, is that a lot of the uh, the, the big naval shells... Um, it's hard to fuse them in such a way that they can be effective because, of course, many of them are designed really to, to kill ships or to, to hit ships yeah. or whatever. Um, even even the high explosives in, in, on some levels can can be in that oriented in that direction. So it's hard to fuse them such that they're really going to do much damage to a bunker when you've got this tiny place where the shell may skip through wherever you're shooting at and then explode above the ground over the water almost. And yeah. I found a um, account from a, like an ordinate, an army ordnance specialist, uh, an artillery and ordnance specialist. And he was going through doing this deep dive, like figuring out, you know, well, the effectiveness of the, the naval shells. And unfortunately at Macon, they weren't very effective. And I think you see something in the same pattern at, at Tarawa too. Right. So they, they open with a big bombardment though, don't they? So, and, and do they kill lots of Japanese in that, or is it not particularly effective? And so, I mean, it sucks for the Japanese. You know, they're concussed, they're traumatized, they've had to hunker down, but they're they're still 
you know, combat effective. In, in other, in other yeah. words, they're still willing to fight. And, and you see the exact same thing, both Tarawa and Macon in that regard. And yeah. it's a classic example of the different perspectives because the Navy, the Naval officers are going to tend to think, man, we just pounded this place. Nothing could be alive there. It looks yeah. awful, right? I mean, there's all this smoke yeah. and dust and things flying around. It's like, man, we've clobbered them. You guys are going to have yeah. a walkover. Um, yeah. The ground perspective is very different because you realize once you're ashore, all you did is rearrange a lot of detritus and it's, it's a bigger maze now on Macon for sure. All these trees that are down and all these, all these like little metal structures that had existed on the island have now been sort of blown apart and now become cover for the Japanese uh, on Tarawa. It's more like these sort of, you know, subterranean coconut log reinforced bunkers that don't really get dented. And so it's like, where are they? Have we diminished them at all? And, you know, unfortunately not. And so it, it really comes down to the, the infantrymen having to kind of root out position by position on both places, but Tarawa much worse, of course. PBI again. Absolutely. That's exactly what I was just thinking is, is that so many times we end up saying, so it ends up being the job of the infantry to... Don't we? How many times have we said that in the last, this year, looking at 1943 events? Hence my obnoxious obsession with that and then constant <laughs> insistence that, <laughs> that ground oh, soldiers yeah. are decisive always. And, and here again. Here they are w- having yeah. to winkle... But of course, it's the it's the problem of the Pacific that you're having to winkle people out who are prepared to die. It's not like in Western Europe. Yes, at least the Germans in Italy, they don't want to die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, some of them do. They're not quite so willing, though, as a... Yeah, yeah. Or are prepared to die, I think it's... Yeah, I'm sure the Japanese don't want to die either, but they're prepared to, aren't they? But yeah, they're prepared that's to. exactly. That's a really good way of putting it, Jim. That's right, because these are young guys. Of course, they want to live, but this is their ethos, and they feel... This is how it's proper to fight, and that's their mission. And they are willing to die, and they will, you know, put their actions where their <laughs> where their ethos is. And that, and so it also shows that how potent defenders are in modern war. And I think Macon's a classic example of this. Yeah, yeah, but it, I, but I'm also thinking about, but I can't help but think about kind of Hamas fighters and stuff. This idea that people are, you know, you you can get to a point. What I think is so amazing is that you can get to a point where you can persuade young people without too much difficulty to put themselves in the foreign island and, you know, almost certainly get killed for what they're doing and for doing these terrible things. I mean, it's it's been ever thus, hasn't it? But isn't it remarkable that young men are prepared to do this? Absolutely. Whether it's to fly into a ship, whether it's to, you know, go on a suicide mission and blow yourself up with a vest, whether it's to go into a kibbutz knowing that, you know, almost certainly you're going to get hunted down and killed as a result or being a bunker on a Tarawa in in the Central Pacific. It is amazing how older minds can manipulate younger minds into doing this stuff, and it's just it's just crazy. Culture. Culture, upbringing, expectations by your elders, uh, by your peers. Right. Yeah, power of ideology within within peer groups, and, and as you say, from, from your elders, it's the sort of... It's the-, it's the same with, with gangs who go around stabbing people in South London, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really gives yeah. you pause, doesn't it? From I mean, from our perspective as middle-aged guys, we are, we're like, this is crazy. This is just crazy. But it also shows the influence we can have as older people on young people <laughs> under the wrong circumstances. Um, and, I, and I'm not necessarily oh, yeah. saying that the, the Japanese are, are horribly wrong or something like that. I mean, it, it's very honorable, I think, to, to say that you're going to sacrifice your life for your country, I suppose. But we look at it as a waste in, from this remove, which in some ways it is. And, and it's kind of incomprehensible, the idea right. that you embrace death, uh, even when you when defeat is so obvious. So it's total death before dishonor. It really is. But this also then, the fact that the Japanese won't surrender, this changes the nature of the way the Americans fight, though, doesn't it? And it embeds some of the sort of racialized stuff about Japanese fanaticism that, that, that's part of the way the Americans start to see or have come to see their their enemy in this theatre for sure, in a way that they don't in in Western Europe either. Because uh, the, the other week I was talking to Wait One May Bjorn about about um, the Jay Glenn Greybert Warriors, you know, and he and he talks because he he fought in Western Europe, in Northwest Europe and, and Italy, and then he talks about the the men he met from the Pacific and their their completely different attitude to the enemy. That their attitude was utterly alien to his experience. You know, there's a, he tells a story of a of a, Jap, a single Japanese soldier who's basically 
and and it's a scene that ends up in the Pacific where they torment this one guy. These Marines torment this one guy, shoot him, chase him around. Up, you know, there's one Japanese soldier who sort of pops up and then kill him. And none of them are that scene. That seems replicated in the Pacific, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Yes, 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 it is. So that that actually happened to Robert Lecky on Guadalcanal. He writes about it in, in his book Helmet for My Pillow. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's when you talk about these battles and when when you look at the way these battles are conducted. Whenever we talk about the Pacific, it's always that thing of you know you know how many Jap- men the Japanese deployed because they were all killed. You know they, you don't have to do your rough number or your your, your guesstimate or a pro- you don't have to be proportionate about it even. You you know like the American casualties are so many of of how, however many they, they sent there. And I find this very, very hard to get my head around because we talk about Western Europe, Northwest Europe so much and, and about prisoners of war and lots and lots and lots of prisoners of war. It seems so. And the Japanese, of course, aren't taking prisoners either. So it's a zero-sum game in that regard, isn't it? It is. And it, well, it, and it, the way things develop, it allows the Americans to really lean into their sort of intrinsic racial and cultural hatreds. Yeah. Saying, hey, these guys are just not like us. Uh, they wanted war. Let's give them all they want um, and let's exterminate them. I mean, that is yeah. definitely the mentality, partially out of just that sheer sort of vindictive race hatred on some levels, but also self-preservation because yeah. there's a lot of times in this war when Japanese seem to be trying to surrender and they'll conceal a grenade and, you know, take a, an American out with them. And and so who wants to take that chance? I mean, at so, you know, you can't blame them on that level, I suppose, but I don't think it gets tragic. And, and so really throughout a lot of the war, it's very frustrating for intel officers who are desperate for information and are yeah. trying to get the combat soldier, the infantrymen, take some damn prisoners, please. I'll give you a three-day pass. I'll do whatever. And and even then, there, there's a lot of units that are like, sorry, you know, no sale. I, I'm not taking any chance. And so the, the, the average American combat soldier sees the Japanese as sort of dangerous animals. Uh, that, that is the best term I can come up with. Uh, so there's certainly like in war or anytime a dehumanization. Um, but the danger, I mean, you can understand why they're worried about the danger from an enemy that feigns surrender, you know, uh, or that refuses to surrender or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, not, they're not imagining that, are they? No, it's very real from Guadalcanal on. We need to take a break right now. We'll see you in a tick. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. So what's the course of the battle on, on um, Tarawa? Yeah, so it's it's uh, a toehold that first day where Colonel David Shoup's regiment 
uh, kind of gets ashore and you see that long pier, you know, that was there. Uh, they, they, they semi secure that. So they get across it cause they're, they're attacking from the South, aren't they? They are. And so they, they, you know, they have this little enclave ashore and, and they're going to, you know, stay with They're worried about Japanese counterattacks that night. Ironically enough, the Japanese counterattacks that night are not as potent as they're going to be later in the battle when the Marines are much more firmly ashore. And there's not as much point to, to what the Japanese are doing. So, so sorry, John. Which direction do they come in from? Are they coming from the north, or the there's Green Beach on the? Uh, on I think the they're west. coming from the south. But I, I really can get turned around on this, so no one should take my word for it authoritatively. <laughs> <Okay>. They, um, <laughs> because it's an atoll. So that and actually, now that I think about it, they're probably coming from the north because they're on the lagoon side, which is also problematic for the ships. They're coming around into the lagoon from the west, aren't they? And then tacking down to the. The beach is on the inside of the lagoon. Basically, you're coming in from the lagoon side, which is very problematic because of the the, the tides and the reef, uh, the resupply. You know, there's not enough LVTs, the alligators, uh, and Higgin boats, as great as they are, I mean, you need a higher tide to get over a lot of that that coral, and that that's a problem. So, you know, but you've got an entire Marine division that can be available here, and that is a really potent force. Second Marine division is a, is a really high-speed unit, parts of which had fought at Guadalcanal. It's been reinforced, refurbished, refitted, uh, trained. I mean, these are really outstanding amphibious warriors. So when you consider how terrible this battle was, I mean, imagine if you had a unit that wasn't as well-prepared and, and, and as well-led at the small unit level. So, and, and as valorous, I mean, it, it takes a lot of courage for us to go bunker to bunker in this place. I mean, there's a lot of death waiting for us out there. There's, a, there's yeah. about a thousand Marines who were killed in action in a three day period or so. Oh, How do you get people to continue to fight? You know, and so, and you, you've seen, you guys have seen the footage, I'm sure, uh, much of it taken by the remarkable combat cameraman, Norm Hatch, who I had the, the incredible honor uh, to meet because we did a documentary together. And it was just interesting to hear him talk about the sort of photographer's perspective. This is a unique World War II battlefield in which he gets both sides in one frame, famously, of course, and uh, in which he's right there with the, the lead Marines getting a lot of this footage that we see today that is so violent. Um, yeah. That's what stands out to me. And he, and he was very unassuming. What was his name again? His name is Norm Hatch, and he uh, he took a lot of the footage that we see when we, we see documentaries in the Battle of Tarawa, and it became... right like a movie, like a feature film movie in that era. And the Roosevelt administration decided to release it uh, because there's a lot of censorship issues, of course. There's a lot of dead Marines, you know, that you're seeing and, and whatever else. Um, yeah, they yeah, decided yeah. to release it, and it partially because of the, the drama of the footage he was able to capture, which is wow. really, truly just remarkable. And some of it's color, especially aboard ship and on the landing craft on the way in. A lot of that footage is color. Um yeah, amazing. And I, I think that's some of the best footage of all World War II, in my opinion. Incredible. Uh, Macon is not as well photographed, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. You'll see, you know, some still images and whatnot, some 27th Division stuff. But, uh, you know, it's just not as big or dramatic a battle. But believe you me, if you are an infantryman uh, in the 27th Division fighting at Macon over that three, four day period, there's a lot of ways to get hurt. And you are really fighting very hard, doing a lot of back clearing. So it's almost like urban combat in that sense, where you think yeah, yeah, you've yeah. captured a position and then these guys spring up because they've been bypassed or you don't see them. It's a very messy kind of thing. And there's only so many weapons you can bring to bear. You know, you've got tanks in both these battles, but. Well, that's you know. it. Because uh, um, when you look at pictures of it, there are, there are Sherman tanks brought to bear. And even even that doesn't necessarily help, does it? That's the thing. No, they're they vulnerable. Brought, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that the next time we do our um, live stream, if you're around, John, you should come on and we should we should show some of these films. Oh, we should. That's exactly, what, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that because I think that'd be really interesting. If you haven't seen the footage, I mean, I'm sure you guys have, but you know, just for the listeners, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's not hard to find. No, no, no. It's, 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 it's all available on YouTube. It's just insane. It is. The sheer violence of this battle is really staggering. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, there's another tragic subcomponent to this too, which I think is a sort of byproduct of uh, just the nature of this battlefield. A lot of the Marine dead, you know, end up as either missing in action because they, you know, they're dead in the water out there someplace, or we have some serious problems with burial and identification, which is still has reverberations all these decades later of people we know who were killed in the Battle of Tarawa and whose remains are initially accounted for 
but the the cemeterial situation is not good over time and you know so you end up with having to kind of re-identify and, and some of the remains brought home in very recent years i mean the last couple of years it's sort of another element of this whole tragedy God, I had no idea. Did you, Al? I mean, just... no, 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 no. I, like I said at the, right at the start. I mean, I knew that Tarao was a was a tough fight, but I hadn't realised there's all these other kind of other issues. I mean, it is ludicrously narrow, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's Tiny. not even a mile mile wide. I mean, you're talking about a few hundred yards. Yes, yeah, so there's nowhere to manoeuvre. So the tank, you know, I mentioned the vulnerability of the tanks. I mean, it's certainly a powerful weapon, and that's a good bunker buster. But you know, the Japanese are right there, and it, and it's hard for the infantry and the tanks to coordinate. The the lines of sight aren't good. Um, they can't communicate all that well, and the Japanese have, you know, enough anti-tank weapons, individually anti-tank weapons, to, to cause a lot of casualties. The light tanks are even more vulnerable at both places, especially Tarawa. I mean, it's... Uh, so, uh, And what can your artillery really do for you? I mean, in both these operations, you have artillery units that are set up on adjacent islands that are trying to help, but... Again, you just kind of have, like like Al said, you got to winkle them out. And you've got to bring f- fire essentially onto your own positions is the thing, if it's going to be effective. So you're you're doing fire missions to, to on top of yourself because you're cheap by jowl with the enemy, aren't you? So that requires great, you know, a round dropping short will cause you all sorts of problems, won't it? I mean, oh, that doesn't bear. I mean. That's horrifying. Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of make horrified noises again. This, this is, I mean, this, this is what we keep coming back to, though, in this theatre, though, isn't it, Jim? And then, are there any civilians on, on apart from these Korean uh, workers? Does anyone live there? So, are there some poor people who are the meat in the sandwich? Yeah, there, there are uh, Melanesians and Polynesians. Very, very small number. Like at Macon, I think there were 1,700, something like that. Taro, I think, is mostly evacuated by the time the invasion happens, but there had been people living there, and there will be people living there after this. So, yeah, I mean, that's another side of this, too, the sort of civil affairs humanitarian side that's always a subcomponent in the Pacific War that I think we tend to overlook and think that a lot of the islands are empty. Uh, and maybe a few are, but usually not. And, yeah, so that's been a little subcomponent of this. Uh, another factor to consider at Tarawa is that, you know, by the time the battle's done, November 23rd, 24th, whatever we'll say, okay, you've got a thousand dead Marines and something in the order of what, 3,500 to 4,000 plus dead Japanese. Think of all the dead bodies in this tiny tropical area. Think of the stench. Yeah. That's something that most of those who fought there could never forget. And the flies and the filth. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't know where to put them, have you, really? And a making isn't quite as bad in that regard, although it's bad. You know, the, the, the whole Japanese garrison there is about 800, 900, something like that. And again, you've got the split up of some laborers. You've got some some naval landing force guys. You've got ground crew, aerial ground crew people. you got all that. And then, uh, of course, you've had a couple hundred guys killed from the 27th Infantry Division, including one of the regimental commanders who is killed in action, Colonel Gardner Conroy, who commands the 165th Infantry, which is the main strike unit there. So, you know, it tells you how... How deadly it was. Conroy's killed by a sniper uh, when he's going f- too far forward on the front lines. And one of his battalion commanders saw it and noticed it and was frantically trying to wave him back. He's like, that's not safe where you're heading. And Conroy was courageous anyway, but he didn't quite know and understand. Uh, and so, you know, all these great battle captains we talk about, like uh, Eichelberger and Patton and whatnot. I mean, they're just luckier than Gardner Conroy. You know, he goes into a bad spot and he pays the price for it. And so he is, you know, you, you lose a full colonel there. But also I should point out, uh, this is a really, on some levels, <laughs> this campaign is a disaster because uh, the Navy suffers such heavy casualties. The, uh, the USS Mississippi in bombarding Macon, one of its gun turrets blew up and uh, killed 43 sailors and, and wounded 17 others. The USS Liscombe Bay was torpedoed on November 24th, so right as these two ground battles are coming to an end. And that accounts for about 600, 700 dead sailors, including an admiral, uh, Admiral Mullenix, and Dory Miller, the famous African-American hero of Pearl Harbor, who had uh, gotten the, the Navy Cross or Distinguished Service Cross, so, you know, highly decorated guy. He was killed when, the, when that Liscombe Bay was torpedoed. So the U.S. deaths at Macon outnumber the Japanese deaths. And then, you know... You add the, the what you lose at Tarawa, that, that's a lot of people you're losing. Is this one of these island hopping battles that maybe the US could have not bothered with? And well, is there, con- is there controversy about 
because obviously this is an incredibly bloody battle for for something the size of you know a few football pitches is is the i mean i'm exaggerating there but you get my point mm-hmm. is this one of these battles where the cost is weighed as not worth it or do harder hearts say no unfortunately this is how we're gonna have to do it i think the standard opinion is generally that it it had to be done that it was worth it. The right. making is certainly worth it uh, from a ground perspective. You get a decent base there. You get a base at Tarawa that's going to help you the rest of the war. You project air power in so many different directions. Then uh, you secure the Gilberts, which allows you to move on to the Marshalls, which really is terribly important, you know, in terms of getting to the Marianas, that whole island hopping thing. But there is some controversy. Uh, some of it stoked by Holland Smith after the war right. when he would yeah. say, absolutely, this didn't need to be done. And, you know, but, but I don't know that you ought to really take Holland Smith's opinion for it um, because he has an amazing ability to be wrong about most anything. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're not his biggest fan, are you? And he's, you know, he's just rattling cages, you know, after the war. And, I mean, it's just like, oh, come on. But, but at the time, MacArthur will use this as an argument to get priority for him because he's like, we don't do frontal attacks in SWAPA. Um, you know, we are much more judicious with our men's lives. This is a bloodbath and all this kind of stuff. And actually, when you look at what he will do later on in the Philippines, there's going to be a lot of uh, heavy fighting with a lot of loss of life, which is, of course, what he wants to go back to the Philippines, right? So it costs that. Um, but MacArthur will try to use that to further his agenda and the sort of press that's friendly to him, the Hearst newspaper empire that wants him to run the whole Pacific war is going to constantly be harping on Tarawa, especially as, as kind of a waste. But I think most historians feel that it really was a worthy objective and it had to be done. I mean, that's interesting that, you know, everything in this theater gets tangled up into the MacArthur sort of uh, matrix of, of uh, his desire to have, you know, all the toys to play with, basically, isn't it? It's the, it's the thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. MacArthur always wants all the toys. Yep. Yeah. And so what, aside from the, you know, Holland Smith trying to cause controversy, what do the US take from this? What do they learn from it? What do they learn about mm. amphibious landing from this? Because atolls with lagoons are going to be difficult because of coral. Do they then think, right, well, in that case, we're going to need to rethink this? Is it a question of how you, what reconnaissance you do, whether you, you know, because after all, you know, we were talking about Normandy earlier, and and, and that that's a obviously that's one great big set piece invasion thing that that absolutely cannot go wrong on any on any level. So the reconnaissance is and the intelligence done on the you know even the geology of the sands and all that sort of stuff is very very mm. it's very very thorough. I'm guessing that you can't you can't do that in Tara, where you can't send blokes in in canoes to sort of measure sand and all that sort of thing. So so what did the Marine Corps? What do the U.S. take from this in terms of what they're going to have to do tactically and whether they got it right or whether this is just going to have to do it, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of levels to that. The uh, photographic recon was excellent for both of these operations because of U.S. submarines uh, that they had snuck in there. There's all these panoramic photos, especially of Macon. Uh, you have a very good sense of what the beaches are going to look like, what the terrain is going to look like, but there's nothing beats, obviously, being on the ground. You're going to have a, a greater role going forward for the underwater demolition teams of the Navy, that maybe they can play a role in softening up beach defenses going forward. And so you're going to see them in play. This doesn't really impact Nimitz, but I think MacArthur's side of the house uh, is going to think in terms of more like on the ground recon forces, the famous Alamo scouts who are going to be in play throughout a lot of the Pacific war. But, uh, but at the, uh, the sort of bigger picture level, I think it makes Nimitz maybe even a little more circumspect about choosing where and when he's going to, he has to, to get, get an island. And he's generally very good about that. I mean, he, he understands a lot about bypassing and, and all that good stuff, just as MacArthur does too. But I think at the sort of small unit level, it, it accents that you're going to need a lot of bunker busting weapons going forward. You're going to need more engineers with explosives. You're going to need more flamethrower teams, um, more bazooka teams. You're going to need to have tanks working closely with infantry. And, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to see a lot of that, I, I think going forward bombardment wise, you know, I think they do the, the best job they possibly can. Sometimes the defenses are just too much for what we've got. Uh, so, you know, they certainly to come up with ways that they think they can be more effective with their naval gunfire, with the, the airstrikes and all that. But uh, but I think it really amounts more to the small unit action level where you see change, especially with flamethrowers going yeah. forward. Well, I suppose if, you, if you're going to have to winkle people out, that's what you're going to have to do. 
And flamethrowers are famously persuasive on the battlefield, aren't they? It's the, it's yeah, the they are, even for Japanese who are determined to fight to the death. They are. They really are. And, and I think the flamethrowers are getting better technologically. By 1944, we've got a pretty pretty high-speed flamethrower. And, and, of course, eventually, you're going to migrate that concept to your tanks, to the flame tanks that are going to be in play at Iwo Jima and Okinawa much later, of course. But those are, uh, those are fearsome weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it says something that that's what you're having to resort to, though, isn't it? Which, which is of all of all weapons, you know, strikes me as the most horrible way to go of the lot. I don't want to pick one in particular; they're all bad. But that's where you end up, and that that again that factors into what we were talking about earlier. That this is how you regard your enemy as someone you're going to have to burn out. I'm afraid, yep. you, you, you know, he, yep. he can't even he can't even run away from you, and you maybe fail to shoot him. Or he can't mm-hmm. take cover from your mortars or your artillery. You're going to burn him out, and and if not, suffocate him by setting fire to the air. Essentially, you know, what, mm-hmm. one or the other. That's what you're going to do to your enemy. I think is tells you where you've ended up, really. And it, I suppose that's the result of the Japanese fighting to the last man. But you've also, you know, we, we've talked about steel, not flesh, a lot. If the enemy, if the enemy is going to only fight to the last man. How does steel not flesh work for you if in the end he's not convinced by the showing of your might and all that sort Bring of stuff? Bring out the fire. I mean, it's all come full circle, hasn't it? From Greek fire in ancient times to, to modern fire through a flamethrower that I'm carrying as a, on my back as, as some poor, unfortunate guy who has that job or, you know, with my tanks or by 1944, you've got napalm in play. Um, which of course is going to be used in European theater too, obviously. Yes, and, yes, of and, course. Uh, yeah. The Allies are going to unleash flame on the on the Germans, famously at Hamburg, obviously. But uh, but you know, I think uh, at the small unit infantry level, uh, flames are a bigger player in the Pacific War than in the European yeah. War in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think you know part of that could be just yeah that the Japanese want to fight to the death, so this is the way. So what are, we're going to have to do happen. this? I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. I I, I yeah. mean, obviously the the British make great use of the crocodiles in um northwest europe but there are stories about what they do is they douse the you know the bunker or whatever with the, with the accelerant and then people give up rather than setting right. fire to the you know <laughs> they go, all right, fine what, fine in that case we, we I think that's up. what most of us would do you know and that's i think that's what it leads to this kind of grudging respect for the japanese too that they could actually continue fighting in the wake of this is just you know really really amazing yeah um yeah, so you know it's, uh, but public opinion back home too after Taro is kind of shocked because of the the tininess of the objective. You could have wrapped your mind around a thousand killed, say for Tunisia or something. Like, okay, well, yeah, that's a big country we're taking, and you know now we have our base to get Sicily or something. But for just this little Central Parkish place, and then chip in another, you know, whatever, whatever it is, a couple hundred at Macon. And then of course the Liscombe Bay, you know, you know, so this is a lot of telegrams coming home, uh, you know, around Christmas time. Yeah. Uh, so the Roosevelt administration has to massage that somewhat. And this takes you on a curve, doesn't you? In the end to the decision to use the atomic bomb, doesn't it? That this is the, this kind of casualty rate. But it gets worse, doesn't it? I mean, it's a whole point because the Japanese sort of, the Japanese are defending the islands the closer you get to Japan. Yeah, your, gra- your graph's on its way up. I mean, the Americans must have a sort of square mile casualty ratio expectation by, by, by the time they're getting closer and closer to Japan. And they run that calculation and, and the South Island looks like a very bad idea, doesn't it? Oh, uh, Kyushu? Oh, yeah. I mean, that would have been a horrifying thing because 6th Army, Kuruka 6th Army probably would have been outnumbered. Uh, yep. Kyushu, because the Japanese are so heavily reinforcing it in you know the, the late summer of 1945, I mean that would have been a just a complete bloodbath that would have made Tarawa look like child's play on some levels. So yeah, there's nobody who's enthusiastic about that. <laughs> there's no doubt. So yeah, I mean of course we were determined to bring to bear any weapon we had anyway. Yeah, the atomic bomb seeming to be just one more weapon, I guess, from that viewpoint, yes. I suppose. But. You know, that's where this war has gotten, unfortunately. And there's a lot of concern, too, about the fact that we haven't even faced the meat of the Japanese ground forces. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, and certainly not at this point in 1943. But, but, but so. the other amazing thing about Tarao is, is that, you know, in very quick order, they've got, you know, in the way that only Americans can do, they've got steamrollers, they've got bulldozers, they've got graders on, and they've made a concrete airfield. 
just like that. You know, there it is. You know, all the dead have been cleared away. The potholes have been cleared away. The whole thing's been smoothed over, leveled over. There's a flag on the top of the of the uh, coconut plant, and planes are landing. I mean, so it is that airfield, and truly amazing, truly amazing. One day we should definitely do a. Um, we should do something on the CBs. I th- you know what I think we should do is is like a conjunctive thing on the CBs and the Army Aviation Engineers because it's the same job. Okay, and and you yeah. have much more of the latter, and the CBs are so famous, and the Army Aviation Engineers. Here I go banging <laughs> that drum again. Um, but it <laughs> does. It'll really yeah. give you the the sort of. Broader perspective of the Pacific War. What these guys do is just amazing. And a lot of them are really well into their 30s and, you know, they got kids at home and whatnot. And, and, but they, they have these sort of construction skills, but they have to have some ground fighting training too, because a lot of times they're in the middle of it. It's really amazing. Well, that's, that's, that's amazing. What a, what a story. Um, it's known, isn't it? But it's still little known, really, I think, yeah. on the big scheme of things. Yeah. Uh, well, as soon as we've finished, I'm going to watch with the Marines at Tarawa. I'm going to... Well, we should definitely show that. Yeah, I won an Oscar. Yeah. Just yeah, and, and, and Norm Hatch was so dismissive about that uh, in, 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 when, when I met him. Like, uh, an Oscar, you know, whatever. I, it didn't matter. You so, know? Jonathan, <laughs> one thing I've got to tell you, Bo, is is that some years ago at the, the History Festival, we had a, a guy came up and he said, oh, my father was a cameraman in the Second World War, and he, although he was British, he was attached to uh, MacArthur's army, and he took colour film footage of, you know, MacArthur's journey through the, in the, through the Pacific and Southeast Asia, and we screened it, and... It was all, you know, it's pretty much all color, and it was the army, U.S. Army in in the Pacific, rather than the U.S. Marine Corps, and it was absolutely amazing. And I must try and find out who that was and what it was because it was incredible. And then we should get that and have a look at that as well. Yeah, yeah sounds amazing. Yeah, to see it that. was absolutely amazing. Yeah, it was it was properly good, properly good. Mm. Anyway, I'll see if I can dig it out. Yeah, yeah, that'd be really interesting. But that was fascinating, yeah. wasn't that good? Wow. Well, thanks, John. Thanks for. I, I mean, I, I like as I said at the start, I knew nothing about this. I know more now, and I will live cast this footage. I think Jim at some point because this is because it's. Um, you should. It feels like an essential thing to watch. Anyway, everyone, thank yep. you very much for listening. Um, uh, yep. To to John, Jim, and myself, um, talking about the the battle Tarawa, Tarawa, and we'll say Tarawa a bit. Tarawa. Uh, yeah. Cheerio. <laughs> Cheerio. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> <laughs>